Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, cultural enrichment, and all-inclusive fares. Discover more at viking.com. Coming up on Money Beat, it's been kind of slow for the IPO market. Is it starting to heat up? What does the new year hold for initial public offerings for investors and for the companies looking to go public? Maureen Farrell, our own, is here. And also Duncan Davidson, partner at Bullpen Capital. This is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. Now from our studios in New York, here are Paul Vigna and Stephen Grosser. Welcome to the Money Beach Show. Paul and Steven here in the studio in New York City, in in uh, sunny and warm New York City, I'd point out, too. I mean, it's a little windy after that storm, but I, it is warm out there today. It's and absurd we, for the end of January. And we hit 20,000. And we hit Dow 20,000. Do we need to spend a, a minute or two talking about Dow 20,000? We can maybe <laughs> you know, talk about that a little bit later as well. But I, later, yeah. I, I was just going to say, I mean, um, how bad am I looking, though, today? Oh, yeah. Did we cue that up? Wait, no. we, we're, we were going to cue we, that we up, weren't we? Yeah, we're going to cue that up for later. Your, for your, uh, your call on, if anyone listened to the week ahead last week for this week, that uh, you might Monday. recall, that came out Monday, you might recall one Stephen Grosser saying, I believe the quote was, I see no catalyst that could push the Dow above <laughs> 20,000. Is that is that is that a f- accurate no, is that an accurate quote of what you said? Yeah, yeah. And can I just set the scene here? Yes, Marine Farrell, IPO reporter. Please do. Uh, with a Dow twenty thousand hat, hat on. Yes, it is so, on. It is covering my bald head. Dow twenty thousand. Bit of a celebratory feeling yes. inside the studio. Yes, I, I, I'll give you. I'll give you a. I'll give you half of it though, Grocer. I really don't think there was a particularly strong catalyst today to do this. I think it was just, it almost feels, to me, I know people always want to find a reason, but to me, it kind of feels like almost like a random trading day. Well, I mean, there was earnings, there was Trump and the oil pipelines, but the reality and why my prediction was so yeah. wrong was we were very close to the right. Right, right, right. It didn't take, it took, you know, two days of 0.5 or 0.7, uh, yeah. you know, gains to just get us a, there. a decent trading day, yeah. pushed it over. And look, at least now it's over. It's yeah. over, and we can start getting back to things that actually matter. Speaking of things that actually matter, thinking speaking of things that are going to occur in 2017, things we're going to look for, different markets. Uh, and you know, we were, and this is something to keep in mind for next for this upcoming December, when we start doing all these year year ahead year recap, we have to come up with a a, a, a nifty title for whatever series we have. Because what we're going to talk about right now, folks, is another in our longstanding, let's look at the, what happened last year, let's look at what's going to happen this year. But that's a terrible title for a series. Mm-hmm. So we have months and months, so let's think of something. What we want to talk about today, though... We'll get far better brains on it than us. <laughs> yeah, right, 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 uh, is the IPO market. And you look at the IPO calendar, and this is really the first week, I look at the calendar every week when I'm putting together our little uh, newsletters. And it's been pretty barren for, for a while now. This is the first week. There's no big names on it. But, I mean, this is the first week that you actually have a, a calendar. Uh, so we have Maureen Farrell here in the studio with us, who has already spoken, Maureen. And on the phone, we have Duncan Davidson, who is a partner at Bullpen Capital and a longtime uh, participant in the IPO market. Duncan, how are you? Uh, nice to talk to you guys. Yeah. Yes, I've seen this is my third IPO cycle, and this one is terrible compared to the 83 <laughs> and the 90s. Well, yeah. So let, let's talk about. I, I want to ask you to define what this cycle is. But before you do that, let's talk about uh, 
you know, 2017. What are we looking at? I mean, like I said, this is the first week where I actually, oh, actually see some names. I wouldn't mind sort of getting calendar. back because we've been in such a sort of dry spell yes. for IPOs the past two years. And, and getting back to sort of your cycle problem, your know, cycle question is what what has been the environment for, sure. you know, in, in the equity markets for IPOs um, the past, you know, two years? Well, it's been terrible. You can do your own stats. Yeah. Um, the way I count in Silicon Valley tech IPOs. 60 in 2014, 34 last year, I mean, 2015, 34, last year, 20. And I've seen about 90 have tried to get out or file after Dynamics gets bought mm-hmm. last night. Um, it might be worse than 20. This might be the worst one we've had since 2001, 2002, after the bubble burst. Wow. Because it, it was pretty interesting. You know, last year we wrote about this over the summer, and this trend has seemed to continue, not just in tech, but we just saw it last night, is that all these um, companies are just about to go out. Maybe they're quietly selling themselves, maybe not, but then they get sold. For the most part, last year it was like, oh, they're going to launch their roadshow on Monday, and they would have announced that Friday they'll announce a deal or Saturday. And with App Dynamics' case, it was really extreme last night. I actually was talking to an investor in the evening who was like, oh, it's going to be a great deal. It's hugely oversubscribed. It's going to go get wow. such a big pop. And it was, a, I think, at the high end of the range, it was a little over $2 billion was going to be the valuation. And then Cisco basically raced in, bought it the night before it was supposed to price for $3.7 billion. So it's a nice, maybe a nice good, score for them. It, yeah, it's a good score, but it's a, I mean for the portfolio managers who I talk to who are like dying to get their hands on a new issue yeah. to differentiate themselves from their competitors, to get some alpha, they like well, can't I, catch a break. You know, the interesting thing about that is, is you say app dynamics, and I see it here on on the calendar. But I, I got to be honest with you, with both of you, like I, I've never heard of that company. But it was a unicorn. Yeah, it was. Wait, so right, right. Well, it's a unicorn. I never even heard mm-hmm. of it. What have been that sort of, uh, Dungan, what have been sort of like the underlying, why are companies sort of, uh, you know, deciding not to go public, choosing either to raise money in the private market or, you know, sell themselves instead of, you know, risking an IPO? Well, basically, we killed the small IPO, the tech IPO after 2000. Okay. There's a bunch of policy decisions made. Uh, the most awful one was decimalization. So if you don't know what that, you probably yeah, wow. know. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, let's go into trading yeah. instead of one eighth. And market makers for small caps and small banks can't make money on a penny. The only mm-hmm. companies you can make money on are huge cap stocks. Yeah. So it basically killed off the small IPO. All and you don't get analysts. Here, we, Sorry, go on. Well, that too. I mean, it was an Elliott Spitzer separated analyst from trading. That's a disaster for small caps because. You don't have an analyst touting your stock and analyzing it. It's much harder to, as a retail investor to go in and buy something. So let me put something on the table to you guys, which may be forgotten. When Amazon went public 20 years ago, it was about a 400 million market cap. Right. Today, they're approaching 400 billion. So if you put $10,000 into Amazon, held it 20 years, you're almost worth $10 million today. Normal people could get rich off tech IPOs from Silicon Valley. And that's gone. We've killed the ability for the retail investor to participate in Silicon Valley. It all goes to insiders. When Facebook went public, it was a $100 billion value. All the money, all the gain from the first money in went to insiders, not to the public. Hmm. And this is what we have to change to bring back the tech IPO. Yeah, no, and you've seen that. You saw that, too, with, I mean, Twitter as well. I mean, it wasn't, you know, as much as Facebook, but it was a big one. And Alibaba. 
I mean, well, the same sort of story as Facebook. Yeah, I think and it's Snapchat. A, when, when Sna- Snapchat. Oh, Snapchat. It's Snap is one of those stocks that comes along half a decade, like Google and Facebook. Every every portfolio manager has to own Snap, and so it'll get snapped up, so to speak. <laughs> um, but it's going to go out at a huge value, twenty five, thirty billion, and it's way beyond its growth period. There may be some decent upside in the stock, but not going from 10,000 to 10 million. That's not in that stock anymore for the retail investor. And it's um, it's pretty fascinating. We've been looking at this. I mean, covering IPOs, I've spent a lot of time now thinking about the dearth of them and why we're not seeing them. But I think your point's a really interesting one. You know, the Amazon um, phenomenon, Apple. And I mean, if you think of Uber, I don't know. I don't think Snap had exactly the same situation. But if you're a client of, you know, name any bank's uh, wealth management division and you have a certain threshold of income, uh, you can get in and get some of these private shares, but the average investor can't. So it is this kind of like have and have not to get in early. And to be fair, you know, they're risky. It's a riskier investment earlier, but you have that crazy growth potential, that hockey stick growth that venture capitalists yeah. can get. Um, but you don't, you can't really get access to that as the average retail investor anymore. Yeah. We so, need to democratize wealth creation in this country. And this is one way to do it. Let's say you didn't pick Amazon, but pick 10 stocks, put 100 grand, 10,000 each in 10 stocks, and one of them is Amazon. You're never going to remember the nine that you lost money on. Yeah. That's just portfolio mm-hmm. theory. The retail investor can make a killing if they're allowed to participate. They're not being allowed right now. The rules are all gone to the insiders. Well, let's uh, let's take a break. Let's, on, let's leave it there. We'll take a break. We'll come back right after this. More on IPOs with Maureen Farrell and Duncan Davidson from Bullpen Capital. Robert Half Research indicates nine out of ten hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. Robert Half is here to help. Our recruiting professionals utilize our proprietary AI to connect businesses with highly skilled talent. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. I'm Veronica Dagger, and I want to retire rich. How about you? Then listen to the Watching Your Wealth podcast. We'll help you get there. For more information, check us out at wsj.com slash podcast and find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and now Spotify. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Money Beat Show. And if you like what you're hearing from us, and if you like what you've heard from us, and you want to hear some other great Wall Street Journal podcasts, we have a lot of them out there for you. You can find us at wsj.com slash podcasts. We are on Twitter at WSJ Podcasts. And you can subscribe to all of these great WSJ podcasts, uh, Your Money Matters, The Free For All, Heard on the Street, What's News, Tech News Briefing, WSJ Opinion, Watching Your Wealth and the Media Mix a lot, and of course, Money Beat. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and your Google Play Music app, iHeartRadio, Amazon Echo, uh, basically anywhere you can get a podcast. Any of your so-called, you know, it's like a, the digital newsstands. We're all there. We're in all the great places you want to be. Uh, talking about IPOs today, we've got Maureen Farrell here in the studio, myself and Steve, of course, and Duncan Davidson, a partner at Bullpen Capital and a, a longtime uh, player. Can I call you a player in the IPO market, Duncan? That's fine. I, I think I can. It's, you know, you've been around for a long time. Uh, you know, let's, let's, let's talk a little bit. Because I think you probably have some some good insight. Let's talk about some of the you know the heyday of the IPOs back in the '90s, which was probably the height of the last cycles you're talking about. I mean, uh, you know, how about this? Just do a compare and contrast between now and then. 
Well, besides the obvious Amazon type of story, let me give you a personal story. I started a company called Covat. We Angel funded it in 96, Venture funded it in 97. It went public in 98. Um, by early 2000, it was worth $9 billion. So from start to <laughs> public bubble, zero to nine billion in four years. Uh, that's a bubble. I, yeah. I miss those days. I do. <laughs> I'll bet you do. <laughs> well, I do. I joined another company early called Intertrust. And Intertrust, I pitched the public offering in October 99 at the peak of the bubble. It was absolutely crazy. Then did a secondary right after the NASDAQ dropped 500 points and came back in April 2000. We were on the road pitching it. We still raised a big secondary. It was a different time. And one of the big things about that time is there were four major small tech banks. They were called the Four Horsemen. And they managed a lot of the private placements and a lot of the the beginnings of the IPO, you'd eventually go to Goldman or Morgan Stanley, but in the beginnings, getting to the IPO process, they advised people how to do it. Those are the people that really made a market in these stocks. When Amazon was 400, 800 million of value, it was too small for the main part of Wall Street. The smaller banks would make a market, would have analyst coverage, would tout it, and people would participate. And that's what's gone away. So when you could talk about the bubble being crazy, but we should also talk about how the foundation of getting these companies out and properly funded and the capital markets working has all gone away. And we have to bring that back or we're never going to see anything like we used to see in public companies, public markets. Was there a moment back then where you said to yourself, this is the top, this thing is peaked? You know, you'd say this is all goes in cycles. Was there a moment where you realized that you, you had hit a peak? Well, I would like to say I called the top. I actually sold half my COVID stock on the day it peaked in the market, but that was probably more coincidence. Just the CEO <laughs> at the time was doing stuff I thought was really dumb. And so I talked to the board and said, I'm going to sell my stock. Don't sell it all. So anyway, um, no, I think the epic moment actually happened in the last great offering of the era, which was on June 30 of 2000, a company called Genuity. It was a spin out of Verizon required by FCC rules back then, long distance. It was a $2 billion or $1.9 billion offering. Uh, Solomon, you know, we all remember Solly Brothers. Yeah. They were yes, trying yes. to support the stock, and it faded right at the opening. A lot of money was lost. Hmm. And that kind of rang a bell for me that there was not going to be another epic IPO for a long time. And that was the last one out. It was just the behavior of that stock in the market. Solly did a great job trying, trying to support it, and it still yeah. disappeared. It meant the whole thing was really over. It wasn't just a buy-the-dip scenario. Well, um, but going back to like 2014, we were writing a lot about the unicorns, the one billion dollar valuation, and how many there were. I think there was over like a what 110 or 120 something about like 175 at one count. At uh, one count, so who's counting? Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's a lot of mythical animals, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, the the re the real question is like those have you know how many of those have come to market at this point very few mm -hmm. I think a lot of people are hoping that Snap which is you know looking to go public soon was going to sort of open the door to this but you're you you don't think that's going to happen in 2017 yeah Snap's a special stock when Google yeah. went public oh three oh four it was a special stock everybody knew it was a platform stock everybody had owned like Intel and Microsoft before it. It didn't start a cavalcade of IPOs. Facebook in 2012 was another one of those. It didn't, it helped. It didn't really start a cavalcade. There was a bunch in 14, but not 13. Yeah. So I think Snap is a one-shot deal. Everybody owns it. They park it and they sit back and they don't wait for the next one. Uber is probably another platform stock if it goes out in 2018. So my view about this is 
2017 will be a weak year for IPOs. A lot of reasons why. You've got the uncertainty of Trump. How are things going to change? Yeah. You've got the Dow 20K. People like Cisco have currency in their stock. We all believe the cash overseas is going to come home. The feeding frenzy this year should be what we saw with App Dynamics. The big tech companies buy these things before they go public. I'm actually, I actually would bet if you want to make a little, you guys seem to be like to do stuff like this. <laughs> I think 2018 will be a great year for IPOs. A lot of the companies, the unicorns that are sort of backlog, like Dropbox, Uber is a big one. There's a bunch of others that are really high quality companies. I think they go out in 18. The investors are really going to want to get liquidity finally. And these companies should be public companies. The public markets actually are more honest and scrutinize things better than the private markets. So I, I want them to be public companies. I, I would bet on 2018, not 2017. I I agree. Sorry not to take the other side, but um, it does seem I've you know heard a lot of predictions also about this M and A market. You know, all these like big tech companies have so much cash on hand, and that just going to be harder and harder to be a middle of the road size wise tech company because they're just they have this real impetus to become bigger and get these companies before they go out, once they are public, kind of like what Microsoft did with LinkedIn. And if they repatriate their cash from overseas, like what are they going to use it for? They're just going to go after more companies. Um, so, I mean, I, we'll probably see more go out, but there are predictions of this big stampede, not necessarily of the huge ones, but of these like $1 to $5 billion unicorns. Some still seem like they're coming probably after snap but even you know the underwriters i'm talking to lawyers it's just moving slower people are waiting watching the dual track processes are continuing so i'm with you i i think it's not going to be as you know the most optimistic people are not going to get what they want one of, we should also can oh. i just make a comment about yeah, the yeah. unicorn craze of course it really was a private ipo market a lot of the right. companies mm-hmm. driving unicorn valuations were fidelity. You know, normal IPO buyers were, in effect, front-running the IPO. And they drove things up to fairly wacky levels, looking back on it. So, in effect, in 2014, we had a unicorn bubble, wacky valuations being driven by people that also participated in 99 in driving up those valuations. Uh, that's where the bubble was. It just wasn't visible in the public markets. And so when the unicorn thing corrected, and it has corrected, it wasn't the dramatic, publicly visible drop we saw in no. 2000, which is probably a good thing. Yeah, um, I mean, you saw that in like a lot of the mutual funds, and like the fidelities were re-evaluing uh, their th- those investments on uh, in, on on their earnings and stuff like that. Yes, and then they walked out of the market to yeah. a great extent. They just disappeared at the end of 2015. Uh, when the August 2015 stock market drop occurred, a lot of people got skittish and then pulled out of the market. And the venture industry has raised a lot of late-stage capital to fill the gap. Uh, but they're sort of more sober money in some respects. Has there also been a cultural sort of shift among, like, the executives at tech startups where they aren't as interested in going public um, just because of, you know, you, you saw this with Snap. I mean, they're issuing non-voting shares. Um, you know, they're worried about, you know, giving, you know, a certain level of con- um, control in their company to um, outside shareholders and what influence those outside shareholders then have. I think there's two things that you said. There uh-huh. is this sort of general belief that a public company's got to hit quarterly earnings, has short-term thinking, it's right. a bad thing. But the funny part of that was 
Fidelity and the others, as we just heard, had to mark their holdings to market after the unicorn thing corrected. So the companies were still subjected to quarterly earnings anyway, even though they were still private. No, that's um, And companies that have long-term thinking like Google and Apple really don't care about quarterly earnings. So it's more of a way you run the company than a, re- than a necessity of having to deal with public markets. On the other hand, the second issue, which is uh, Google did this, uh, Facebook did this, the ability to try to keep non-voting shares out in the public and voting shares in your own hands is, is a trend. But only a few companies get away with it. And they tend to be, the, what I said, these platform companies you have to own, where the portfolio manager will buy it anyway, despite the uh, corporate voting structure. And we only have a few, you know, for a lot of the entrepreneurs I talk to, it seems like there is like this real wariness about going public and, you know, can I innovate when I get out there and with, with these quarterly earnings? On the flip side, some people point to like um, Mark Zuckerberg saying we should have gone public earlier. Facebook should have gone. It helped us like grow up as a company and hold ourselves to certain standards from which we actually were able to like grow and learn and evolve much quicker. That seems to be a bit of the thinking around Snapchat, that they're like, they have to get to a certain place, and that's not a bad thing. They need to learn how to run their company in the right way, and it's going to, you know, they'll grow up, they'll get out of their so-called parents' basement and, you know, (laughs) move on and be this, like, mature, yet innovative company. So I think there's a little bit of that, um, you know, kind of rhetoric thinking. uh, Let me put it this way. Inside of Facebook, there are a lot of employees who were trying to sell their stock, and a secondary market evolved for a while in Facebook private shares. The other side of democratization of wealth are the employees. So one side of the retail investor participating in the tech upside. The other are employees. Uh, Law changes have made it really difficult for employees with stock options to make a lot of money. For example, alternative minimum tax bites people in the butt that don't expect it to apply to them when they exercise things like ISOs and think they don't have to pay taxes. So the pressure from the inside is to let the employees get wealthy off the success of the company. The longer you stay private, the harder that is. And employees, if they leave, may not get the victory of their activity. I think that's one of the things that is motivating Zuckerberg to say this, because he saw the secondary market in his own employee shares that was so robust for a while. Uh, we have been talking about the IPO market with Wall Street Journal reporter Maureen Farrell and Duncan Davidson, who is a partner at Bullpen Capital. Duncan, really appreciate the time and the insights. Thanks a lot. Thank you, guys. Love your podcast. Oh, thanks. 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 Hey, you can subscribe at WSJ.com slash podcasts. <laughs> Consider it done. All right. All right. Duncan, thanks. No, no, thanks. thanks. We appreciate your time. And everyone, as always, we appreciate your listening, and we will catch up with you again very soon. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com.